You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Dr. Michael Thomas, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. I've always had problem with food. My mm. weight yo-yos. I would often find myself enjoying a good meal or a bad one to the point where my stomach would hurt and I'd spend all night awake uncomfortable. When my wife and I first met, she was baffled. For her, food was a means of sustenance, an occasional pleasantry. Why the heck was it causing me such problems? Mm -hmm. I knew it was bad for me, making me feel so bad. Why couldn't I just stop? After much discussion, we both came to the realization that my grandmother grew up in an orphanage during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much food around. That food scarcity mindset was passed on through the generations, for me, as a child, every celebration was tied to eating. In fact, I was overtly praised for my healthy appetite. And yet, being the youngest of three boys, I was always struggling to wrestle the food off the serving platter before someone else could get to it. I grew up using food as a means to soothe, to celebrate, and yet there was always the fear that it would disappear quickly. The solution to my eating problems was not to have my spouse criticize or to proclaim that it was time to get my act together. Instead, it was deep listening, understanding, and eventually empathy. My behavior was not the product of immorality or a weak spirit, but better yet, a history of actions honed through experience and even trauma. Yeah. The solution was to set up habits and a new set of actions that were more in alignment with what I need. Well. As you know, Earn and Invest is a financial show, not one about weight loss and healthy eating habits, but I thought this story would be a great introduction. My guest today is having these same conversations, except he's having them when it comes to money behaviors. Dr. Michael Thomas serves as a lecturer in the Department of Financial Planning, Housing, and Consumer Economics at the University of Georgia. He teaches Introduction to Personal Finance to 2,000 undergraduate students each academic year. His research interests focus on understanding empathy and self-compassion's impact on financial well-being and how data visualization influences financial behavior. He currently serves on the board of the ARC and the Association for Financial Counseling and Planning Education. Dr. Thomas is also well-known for his TED Talk, Financial Empathy, Exploring the Story Beneath the Numbers. Dr. Michael G. Thomas Jr., welcome to Earn and Invest. In your 2017 TED Talk, you say that people call you cheap, but you prefer the term frugal. 
What's the difference between cheap and frugal? Is there one? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that there is. I think it's the at the end of the day. I think it's the the mindset in which individuals kind of uh, perceive what they're getting for what they're paying for. So, for instance, uh, cheap would be I'm going to just do these things or buy these things because I think that it's it's just low cost, but I'm not considering the value associated with the thing, right? Um, frugal is just being more intentional about how you spend. So for instance, I, I'm very, if you, if you look at the car that I drive, very frugal, right? But if you look at the vacations that I take, not so much frugal, <laughs> right? So there's there's a level of intentionality in terms of how I spend, and there's more of a mindfulness with spending, meaning that being frugal, I may not spend a lot. However, if there is something that I would say, hey, you know what? If we spend a little bit more money on this product or this item, we may get a better experience. We may get better value in the long term uh, for it. So that's that's kind of like the play there. And oftentimes when people see me, um, it's easy for them to perceive me as, as, as cheap. However, if you look at the running shoes that I have on right now, I have on Brooks running shoes. <laughs> these, are, these are like $200 because I actually go and run. And I know that if I don't spend on quality shoes, my shins are going to hurt. I have flat feet and all these other different things. But if you come from where I come from, Doug, nobody rocks Brooks. <laughs> or from Gary Dieta, right? This is Jordan's. These are Feli's back in the day, whatever it may be. So people wouldn't consider anything as it relates to my shoes because they just wouldn't know. But they would look at my 2005 Toyota Camry and say, hey, I know you got it. Why don't you get another car? Well, I have 316,000 miles on my vehicle. I haven't had any major issues whatsoever. And I literally feel I can go 400, 450,000 miles in my vehicle. Um, and I haven't had a car note in like 15 or 17 years. So I, I think that there's a difference there. People who are cheap are generally just looking for cost savings any and everywhere that they can get them without considering value. Uh, when I think about frugal or frugality, I just think about individuals who are just a little bit more intentional in their spending uh, and are willing to spend less where necessary and willing to spend a little bit more where necessary. So I want to talk about frugality and how you developed this habit. And I want to do so through the lens of your childhood let me do it in an interesting way and ask you a question. Is frugality a superpower for you or is it a coping mechanism? Actually, honestly, it's a combination of both, to be completely honest with you. Um, for the longest time, frugality was a coping mechanism for me. My natural tendency is to save. And for the longest time, it had been fear-based. Um, which is part of where that empathetic and empathy tone comes from. And I didn't really realize until I actually engaged in some deep reflection. And then oftentimes it, you engage in deep reflection when you interact with someone who is completely not who you are. And they force you to see you in a way that you can't see yourself. So again, this kind of plays in a role of my spouse who had maybe some similar experiences that I did growing up, but she didn't internalize them in a way that I internalized them. And I think that there's a powerful dynamic there that we don't talk enough about as it relates to childhood money experiences 
It's not just the experience in and of itself. It's how we label them, internalize them, and then how we ultimately create these coping mechanisms or adaptive responses um, to these things. So for me, it was uh, coping and a lot of it very much so uh, fear-driven for a, a good portion of my life. However, on the flip side of that, the reason why it's also become a superpower because it also created the space within me to be socially indifferent, meaning that as I was growing up, um, honestly, I, I never really gave into FOMO, right? Because I guess the the fear of not having for having for some unexpected financial shock or my mom may need something. Literally, when I was in high school and I started my first job, I had three thousand five hundred dollars at the height of my savings just kind of saved in a shoebox in my closet. Like I went to work, I got paid, I saved all my money. Right. Because for me, it was, I was in my mindset, I was like this de facto safety net for the household. And there was nothing that was more important to me than to ensure that if something came up that I could cover it. And that, that mindset psychologically, had kind of been sold into me at a very early age. I'm the oldest. So if my when my dad left, um, and he would always say, You're the man of the house now. Now, mind you, Doc, I'm seven. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you when you think about that as a kid, you you take on that stuff and that weight, right? And that's all that that weight has always been placed on my shoulders. I've always been the person that was relied upon to be the responsible one, the one to make the right decisions, the one to not get in any trouble, not ruffle any feathers, to create a space to where my mom wouldn't have to stress about anything. So my identity was not rooted in being a child, you know. It's okay to make mistakes and do all these other different things. Uh, I, I took on a role and a responsibility very early on uh, in our household, uh, whether it was cooking and cleaning and washing dishes and washing my own clothes. Like, and mind you, I'm 40 now, right? So, Doc, and I know, like, to my students, this seems ridiculous, but this was the reality even in the early 2000s. Like, literally, when I was working at my grocery store, they wouldn't have men uh, block off the baby food aisle because the logic at that point in time was that, well, guys have bigger fingers, right? And they're going to be more clumsy. So women go and do that. <laughs> like when I was growing up, I would literally have uncles and aunts that overhear them having conversations about whether or not it was a guy's responsibility to wash dishes or wash clothes. Like that was a very real conversation at that time. My mom didn't care. <laughs> so I had full responsibility. Uh, and in mind you, my mom oftentimes worked double shifts. And so that point in time, again, last key kid. And it was my responsibility to take care of my sister and myself. I wouldn't get us up. For school, make sure that we had breakfast, got us to school, got us home, made sure we did homework, like any and everything that needed to be done. That was my responsibility. Um, so I didn't really lean into like the latest fads and this or that or other because I just knew we didn't have it. One. So I never really gave my hopes up 
on having those things and just leaned more into what I perceived as my role as it relates to having an adult level type responsibility at a very early age to take the pressure off my mom. So because of that, I'm very much so socially indifferent. Um, I'm not, I'm not impressed by stuff and things. Uh, I'm more impressed by the quality, the character of an individual. And that's what really attracts me to people at the end of the day. Yeah. That's kind of like my origin story a little bit as it relates to that. A lot of it was fear rooted initially, which created the social indifference, but the social indifference just kind of stuck over time to a point to where I failed to realize that its origins were rooted in fear initially, and it just became a part of who I was, and I just kind of navigate space that way, honestly. So we're talking about financial empathy, and to truly be empathic towards other yeah. people's finances, we have to understand those other people's stories. Yeah. And you've been talking about how frugality, while a superpower today, was fear-based when yeah, you very started- there was a sentinel moment and you discuss this in your 2017 Ted talk and you actually get choked up right there in the midst of yeah, the talk. Yeah, yeah. Tell us that story. Yeah. So in, in a Ted talk, I, I kind of go through this whole scenario and situation where um, my mom was basically sitting on a bed and our, the way that she, <laughs> the way that she would, um, do our budgeting was literally on the backs of bills off the time and just like random paper just kind of spread out on the bed. And she would always have like envelopes with numbers on them all over the place. Uh, but it was just this one particular time where she was just in a room and I can just tell that things were off. And me kind of picking up on that energy, I just kind of go in and just kind of sit there and just be present and just be in her space. And I guess she was more so overwhelmed in this instance uh, than she had been. Uh, we never had a conversation directly about that moment and what was going on, but she she literally broke down in that moment with me being in it. And I think that me sitting in the room kind of made it worse because now she's looking at the things that we're either going to pay or not pay. And then I walk in and maybe the thing that we're not paying was to promise to go to six flags and we can't go to six flags right and we had plenty of summers where we just didn't do anything at all all summer right all my mom did was work and uh, we just had to stay out of trouble basically so she kind of pulls me in and me again not knowing what's going on and she just keeps telling me we're going to make it we're going to make it right and she's like tearing up and all these other different things um and because of that quite honestly going back to being socially indifferent Another adaptive response for me in that moment was, I'm not going to be a burden to you. And because of that, that's become a part of my money script, which is a weird dynamic. And, and Doc, I'm still working on this because it's so deeply entrenched, that moment, is that I perceive, and I'm just being very authentic here, I perceive providing value add to my family by saving us money, by not being a burden. And that, and again, I don't want to get emotional here because you got me going in that direction. <laughs> I think you know what you're doing. Um, but it's, it's something that I struggle with still. Like it's very difficult for me to let go and just have fun and enjoy life, uh, in a carefree way, like a child would 
because I really never had that opportunity to be a carefree child. Uh, so much of my life has just been revolved around responsibility. Stuff needs to get done and you need to be a part of helping out. And so that was a part of that story. And because of that, uh, at a very early age, I stopped asking for Christmas gifts. I stopped asking for birthday gifts. I stopped asking for anything because I felt like I was going to be another number that my mom had to contend with. And my mom's the type of person, like she loves Christmas. She loves holidays. She loves birthdays. But I also know that she loves them so much that she'll not pay something that we need to pay in order to ensure that we would have X. And for me, I would rather have the lights on. I would rather have heat. I would rather have hot water running. I would rather her have some peace of mind than for me to be able to enjoy this fleeting moment of a birthday when you're not having paid something else. Something else is going to cause stress and you're frustrated. And, and that's going to last a whole month or month and a half. And now we're in a precarious position or situation. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And I, even to this day, still struggle with enjoying life in a way that I see others enjoy it. Because when we, when we talk about trauma, uh, what we're really talking about are the synapses that were created in your brain when you experience something. So trauma isn't just this thing that's out in the ether that we just evoke a word and it creates an emotion. We're literally talking about the wiring of your brain. And if your brain has begun to be wired in a certain way, it still needs to have other circumstances and situations that reinforce that neurocircuitry. So if someone's dealing with poverty or they're experiencing with a lot of volatility within a household, what happens is, is that an initial event coupled with other events within a system reinforce the neural circuitry. And so what I've had to realize over time is that the stuff that I deal with isn't just an emotion, right? We're actually talking about neuroscience. We're also to, we're talking about cortisol and the uptick of that. When I'm experiencing something, because that's the way that I adapt it in a certain way to protect myself against something. And I think that's so incredibly important in my story and other stories is that when we engage in this process of change, we're not just changing behavior, we're rechanging the wiring of our minds. And I hope that in saying that, it allows people to have some grace and self compassion as they're navigating their own journey. Because you just don't rewire your brain by doing something for a day. And I know you know this as someone having a background in medicine and things of that nature. And we have to have deeper, more meaningful, more thoughtful conversations, not just about our history and past, but just purely around human biology and neuroscience and understanding the impact between environment, body, and mind and how these things can become entrenched and how it does take time to create new habits, new ways of thinking outside of a bounded paradigm that I may have that was absolutely rooted in reality. There's no way that I can tell myself that that wasn't real. It was real. However, there can be new realities coupled with one that I've also known, and they're not mutually exclusive. They can both actually exist 
within the same ecosystem and universe. And I, and I think that that's an empowering, empowering way to think about this process of financial wellness and well-being, not just for an individual who's navigating the journey, but then also for someone who may be listening to this, who's a, who's a practitioner, and maybe they've said, oh, well, this person just doesn't care about their well-being because they're not engaging in said activity. Well, you don't understand their physiological and visceral response to said thing that can be an adaptive neural circuitry response to something. It isn't that they don't care. It's just that they haven't developed the tools and the capacity to navigate their old wiring to create new synapses that help kind of gradually build over time. And as we think about the like trans theoretical model of change, uh, there's a there's a there's a portion of that that is maintenance mode, which meaning that we already understand that in engaging in change, we're going to relapse. It's just that when we continue, our relapses become less and less and less because before they basically become non-existent as I adopt a new behavior and can take on a new paradigm and neurocircuitry rewiring process that helps me to sustain my behaviors. So this entire thing that I was getting at with financial empathy was creating the space for individuals to be able to navigate what this process is without shame or guilt. Because then otherwise what happens is that we inadvertently put them in a box that they can't get out of, that they may internally have already placed themselves in a box. So I'm bounded by myself and the people around me. How do you ever escape that? Right. And it's, it's an interesting play here. So to summarize, trauma rewrites our neurons, sometimes in unhealthy ways. Yeah. And financial empathy is the telling and receiving of stories, which can be very impactful over long term of undoing maybe some of that damage or trauma to the neurons. Yeah. Let's talk about American culture. I mean, we use language <laughs> like the American dream, and I call it the American yeah. dream script of how we make it in yeah. America. And we talk about also things like hustle culture. Yeah. Is is American culture unempathetic, especially when it comes to our money struggles? I I 100% think that it is. And I and I don't I don't want to say that it's unempathetic. So there there are three types of empathy. One of the ones that is most often associated with cells is cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is just having an understanding of someone. I don't feel what they feel. I'm not seeking to feel or understand what they feel. But I need to understand how they feel so that I can coerce them in some type of way to get them to do what I want them to do. So me understanding them allows me to understand their trigger points for emotion. And what we understand about emotion is that people usually respond, whether optimally or suboptimally, based on some emotional driver, right? So if I want, so if I'm going to sell somebody life insurance, what a lot of people will say is that, well, if I, if you've ever heard an insurance salesman, they'll say, if I can get the person to cry, I've sold the insurance, right? If I can get the person in the car and they can feel and sense and see it and touch it, and like I'm getting them to engage in a visceral response. I just need to know what the triggers are to get them to feel in a certain way so that I can drive a behavior. 
So what I think American culture does is that it actually uses certain components of the empathetic process to tap into emotion, not to respond with compassionate empathy, but to actually to coerce people to make decisions and to nudge them to make decisions that may not be optimal for the individual, but are definitely good for GDP, right? Are definitely good for sales projections, are definitely good for when you walk into Walmart as soon as one season has changed, like the day, the day after they've literally gone into the next season of sales. There's these tiny nudges of nostalgia, music, fragrances, like all these things are tools that are used to trigger an emotional response for my best interest. That's not empathy, right? Uh, So when engaging in empathy, you're doing it to kind of engage in a process to understand someone well enough to either engage with them compassionately or to be able to say that I may not have the tools to serve you based on how I I know you. Maybe these are other places I can. So I think that American culture rooted in capitalism understands these nuances very well. And it's very important that people understand that when you buy, when we engage on our phones and any of these things, we're actually looking at testing that's being done, right? AV testing, Mm -hmm. color palette testing, timing testing, understanding your data in terms of the flow of your day testing, when is the perfect time to drop an ad, right? What color palettes get you to stay on longer? Like this is all data. This is all science. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the data and science is being used against them to trigger an emotional response to encourage them to spend. My thought process has been, well, if we can engage empathetically with ourselves and others, then we can actually use the very tools and resources that are engaging people to respond suboptimally to potentially get them to engage optimally, right? Noon's third law, every option, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. Uh, So if you can work one way, the paradigm has to be able to work the other way, right? So when people can be vulnerable enough to sense and feel their emotions, to understand where those are coming from and where the drivers of those things may be. Then you can navigate systems and say, oh, I see why I'm feeling a certain way. You can kind of externalize the way that you engage with self, which is such a beautiful thing. However, when we navigate in a system of guilt and shame and hustle culture, and you're not doing enough and you're not X, Y, and Z, then we don't actually engage intimately with our own feelings and engage in self-discovery. We actually engage in otherness, right? And are seeking for someone else to be the relief, for someone else to have the system, for someone else to provide the product, right? To bring me some level of contentment and joy. And you and I both know that no matter how much money you have, money without wisdom is financial bondage. Because money in and of itself isn't the cure and end all for for anything. Because no matter how much money you have, there's always going to be something more exclusive. There's always going to be something more expensive. Uh, And there's no end to that rat race, quite honestly. But it's hard for people to navigate outside of it because we're so bounded by culture. And culture doesn't really give us a chance to be self-reflective and to actually engage in space of getting to know oneself, one's stories, the emotions associated with them. 
whether or not those things are still true or not within their current situation and circumstances. And to actually to navigate self, to engage in self-discovery, to manifest joy as an internal thing and not an external thing. And if that if that was the paradigm, capitalism, capitalism wouldn't be as effective as it is. And we would have to be rethinking some things in terms of how we navigate the current systems and constructs that are in place. But us buying things is the construct that's in place right now. And so because of that, it's very difficult. So for instance, and I'll just say this and I'll stop here. When I teach my class, I tell my students all the time. I was like, hey, I need you all to understand that you're navigating systems. I'm going to tell you to save. I'm going to tell you to invest. I'm going to tell you to do all these amazing things. But as soon as you leave my classroom, you only have me for an hour. You're going to be inundated. For the next 17 or 18 hours, depending on how much sleep you're getting or not getting, and that's a huge thing there as well, uh, you're going to be inundated with messages that are going to be coming at you seven to 10 times a minute, potentially, telling you to do exactly what I told you not to do when you leave this class. Who wins this battle? You only get me for an hour, right? But you get drip marketing for the rest of your day, all day, every moment of your day, as soon as you leave. That's not random. So I need you all to be aware that sometimes your emotions, how you feel, even like if you struggle, like you had mentioned earlier in terms of like food and consumption of food and what the paradigm was with your family. I had a student who we do a, a project where I not only get them to track their expenses, but I get them to track their systems. How are you navigating Canvas? What buildings are you walking into and out of? When you go to work, how are you feeling before and during and afterward? What are your emotions? Because I want them to tether their systems to their spending. If I'm spending more, is it because of something in my system? What was it in my system? And do I need to change my system to address my spending? Or is it the foods that I'm consuming? And that was the point I was going to get to. Like oftentimes in our culture, we tell people, Oh, dining out is the, the biggest expense that most people spend on. Absolutely. And why is that? Because most of the food that's been created, and this is nothing new, are being designed to be craveable. So if I go and I dine out, I'm not just consuming food. I'm actually consuming food that has been created for me to crave it. So me telling someone that, oh, you just need to stop eating out is going to be the end-all be-all to your spending plan, but they can't stick with that, then they think that something's wrong with them. And then usually it's a shame element. And then we shame people. Why can't you just stop eating out or this or that? Or you may be predisposed to having sugar cravings and all these other different things. And then what happens is that we just tell people, oh, well, they just don't care about their financial well-being. <laughs> well, we have to consider their system, right? And what they're consuming. And then when that person realizes that, let me see if I just stop eating this particular thing, or maybe I stop, stop drinking a sugary sweet first thing in the morning and I start my day with water. Does that actually impact the way that I desire food and my cravings throughout the day? And if that's the case, then I'm spending less. So was this really a situation of a spending behavior or was it a biological factor? 
And that's what I'm getting at with this, this big picture in terms of navigating the stuff as we think about even financial wellness and well-being, financial independence and all these other different things, is that we have to understand these systems that we're navigating and how those things are impacting us. Because sometimes the optimal financial strategy has nothing to do with money. And I think that is such an incredibly powerful paradigm that we all have to understand. Like I mentioned to you earlier, for some people, their spending is rooted in this family expectation that's been placed on them to be the rich uncle or the rich aunt. So it's the expectation that you are the one that's supposed to throw the parties and pay for everything in X, Y, and Z. You take that on, even though you're going into debt to do this, right? So the issue actually isn't the overspending. It's the label that you've allowed yourself to be tethered to and the expectation we've allowed ourselves to be tethered to within the paradigm of the family construct. So is it the spending or is it the paradigm in a family construct? When we can understand that, then it's like, oh, I see it now. In order to address this debt issue, we're going to have to address your perception about self within the ecosystem of your social capital. That's where the root cause is. And if we can address that, then the debt thing, it actually is going to mitigate itself over time, right? So I'm into root causes. And I think that money in and of itself is a, is it's not the root cause. It's more or less a symptom. And it actually gets us, it allows us to kind of clue into, all right, if this is happening here and when this is happening, I can start to tease a very powerful story to get to where the root cause is so we can actually engage in sustainable change. And that person can know where their triggers are. And then now we can create systems around the trigger or we can recreate the trigger to help someone engage in self-regulation and breathing and things of that nature. There, there's just so much more than just a budget <laughs> to navigate all of this. But when we can engage in an empathetic process, what it allows, I say this all the time, empathy is going to change you more than a person that you're trying to change. Hmm. Because it changes your paradigm in terms of how I even need to begin to address this. Means That, that now means that maybe I need to go tool up a little bit more. Maybe I need to understand other therapeutic methods that may better address the needs of this individual. Actually, maybe I need to literally put myself in the place of this individual, not feel it from a perspective of, oh, I think I have a similar experience. But no, let me say, oh, I have a client who is spending so much money doing X, Y, and Z. And they don't have time for to get another job on the weekend, and I'm not understanding. Well, if you have two or three kids, and you don't have a washer and dryer, and you have to take the bus, how about let some clothes build up at your house, find the bus routes within your system, find the nearest laundromat, go get some cash, and start off first thing in the morning, catch the bus. If you want to catch the bus with your clothes, you might want to just do an Uber, right? All right, so we go and do an Uber, and they go spend time at the laundromat all day. Like, actually, actually do it, right? And so for me, what that does is, is that now before I recommend that, let's say someone use a particular service, I will call that service and act like I'm my client because I'm a transference of trust. So I'm not going to garner the trust of an individual. And then just say, hey, go use this public resource 
I heard it's really, really good unless I've actually gone through and used it. Because if I call them up and they give me the runaround and they put me through a phone maze and they're not directly answering any of my questions or they're talking down to me because they perceive for me to be lower SES, then I can't, I can't recommend that to them because what's going to happen is that they're going to be triggered by the experience that I recommended them to that I built all this time fostering trust. Now it's, see, I knew that this was going to happen. And then now we get bounded by these elements of guilt and shame and things of that nature. Uh, so I'm really big into, again, this element of, of systems, understanding, again, this paradigm, a story beneath the numbers, and then thinking about this stuff holistically in terms of helping to serve clients and then actually helping practitioners to be better at the work that they do as well. We are talking to Dr. Michael Thomas, who serves as a lecturer in the Department of Financial Planning, Housing, and Consumer Economics at the University of Georgia. And we are talking about financial empathy. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Michael Thomas. He is known for his TED Talk, Financial Empathy, Exploring the Story Beneath the Numbers. Michael, we've been talking about financial empathy, and I could imagine someone critical to this message would say, hey, you know, we can get into all this empathy stuff, but are we relieving people from their own personal responsibility? Is there a problem there? No, actually, I, I I think that that's the issue with people's notion and, and paradigm of, of empathy and even compassion. So there, there are three types of empathy. There's cognitive empathy, 
There's affective empathy, which is the emotional empathy. And then there is compassionate empathy. There is nothing about compassion that states that we are undermining someone's agency. The whole point of compassion is to help people or to use our resources effectively in such a way that empowers people to express their own agency, right? So for instance, my little guy a few years ago wanted to, he wanted to run a mile. And I said, cool, I let's, let's do it. But I knew that he didn't have the capacity to run four laps. So I engaged in the process with compassion. So I said, hey, because I didn't want to create, I, because he didn't have the foresight to understand what I understood about running. <laughs> and I wanted to have, I wanted him to have an experience that he would continue to come out to the track to want to get better. So if I just would have went out and said, hey, and him not having ever ran, we're just going to run four laps and I want you to soldier through it and toughen out, you know, be tough, which is kind of the mentality that we use half the time. But anybody who knows anything about running knows that that is not the way that you build base. That is not the way that you sustain long-term running behaviors or even help someone produce endorphins and a natural feel-good sensation of running. So we went out, we ran one lap. And I said, all right, we're just going to stop for one second, but I was like, how are you feeling? He was like, I feel good. I feel good. He was like, was that a mile? I was like, that's not a mile. <laughs> but I was like, if we keep going, right, we'll eventually get there. He was like, okay. He was like, just give me 15 seconds. We ran another lap. And he said, was that a mile? I was like, nope, but we're halfway there. Good job, man. If you keep going, we'll get there. He was like, all right, give me 15 seconds. And then eventually we got to the fourth lap and we ran a mile. And he said, Papa, I did it. I did it. I ran a mile. Would you say that me being a parent, I did anything to undermine my child's level of agency? Not at all. I engaged empathically with understanding who he was, understanding where he was, understanding how he would feel if I just forced him to run through something that he had not built the capacity to run for, he probably could have finished. But will he? would he have wanted to have come back out with me to run again? Not at all, right? So this is my same child who has now since run 5Ks with me. He wants to run his, he's 10. He wants to run a 10K now. And it was all because I engaged compassionately with him on his journey. Not at any point in time that I undermine his agency. Actually, I encouraged it. And that's the beautiful thing about empathy is that empathy allows for us to understand, understand an individual's capacity for agency, right? And then to start where they are baseline wise so that they can effectively build. And I call this a baseline approach. I do this with all my clients. Like, let's find your baseline and let's celebrate your baseline because you can do this under high stress, no stress, whatever it may be. I know exactly where you are. So as we engage in modification of behavior, we're going to gradually build from baseline. And when we know where we've gotten to a new baseline, which means that now you can operate at a certain level, even if you are under duress or stress, now I know that we've achieved new baseline. Now we celebrate that baseline and we build from there. So the interesting thing about empathy is a lot of people think that is purely emotional. No, that's sympathy. Sympathy is a purely emotional response, typically by the onlooker who doesn't want to deal with their dissonance. 
And it just is not about the other person. It's about them and the inconvenience or the emotions that they're feeling, right? Empathy in and of itself is actually a very solid blend of a emotional response that we're not overwhelmed by, but we can understand that of someone else. And then also an intellectual understanding as well of an individual. So it's a blend of the cognitive and the emotional that allows for us to be able to help someone navigate something that they can't see themselves. No one, not one listener here would say that if you had a family member who was overwhelmed by emotions and that was incredibly distraught as they were dealing with some extreme situation or circumstance, would say that by me being there and helping to console them, that I'm undermining their capacity for agency. No, what you're doing is, is that you're actually helping them to, to soothe themselves in a healthy way so that they can now engage in the process of agency and not feel any shade or shame or guilt by their tears or the experience that they're experiencing. Because we're allowing for them to actually experience it in a healthy way without guilt or shame, right? Which then allows for us to get to neutral neurologically so that we can use our prefrontal cortex to begin to perceive how we can take steps forward. So what's fascinating to me is that a lot of people think that empathy is just like this purely emotional thing. And I'm stepping in in such a way where I'm doing too much for someone. Well, that's actually not compassion and empathy. There's nothing compassionate about doing something for some way in such a way that causes for them to stay fixed or stuck in their situation. That's not compassion. And I, and I use the paradigm with children. When your child does something that they should not do, you don't say that, oh, I'm not going to give them a, a punishment that's necessary for the thing that they've done because I want to be empathetic and I want to be compassionate towards my child. No, you're being compassionate towards your child by actually saying, hey, here are boundaries. And we don't need to extend these boundaries because if we do this, you put yourself in a position to be hurt even worse than you are now. And I think that we confuse compassion and empathy or compassion and empathy, which is what I feel completes the process with this notion of just being a pushover and you're allowing for someone to do whatever they want to do or however they want to do it. That's not compassion because I'm not actually doing what's in the best interest of an individual. Sometimes compassion is saying that, hey, I'm sorry, but I can't help. I love you so much to say that I can't help because guess what? Because if we, if I, if I can't tell you that I can't help you, then that's not empathy. That's sympathy. I'm so overrun by emotions that I don't know how to deal with my own issues as it relates to you that I can't engage in a compassionate response. So therefore, I can't create boundaries, and I want to do something that absolves me of my own emotions and my own feelings. So now we have to be thinking about what are the, the differences between sympathy and empathy, and that's what we're kind of parsing out here. And I think that we confuse the two. Uh, empathy that leads with a compassionate response is going to be rooted in a level of care that goes beyond just a visceral emotional response. It's also that uh, cognitive element of it as well to be thinking about, all right, what can I do in the best interests of this individual? Last thing, case in point, 
I had a family member who reached out to me and said, Hey, Mike, I would, I would love, could you co-sign on something for me? And I said, I don't, based on my history with you, and I know history that you've had with other family members, I don't feel comfortable co-signing on something with you. However, what I will do is that I will help you get a secured account so that you can bolster and build up your own credit. I can go in $500. You come in with the other $500, we'll get you a secured account for $1,000 or whatever it may be. And then you can bolster and build your credit from there. Sympathy, feeling bad about somebody in their situation or circumstance and how it makes me feel would have drive would have driven me in some instances to have potentially have done something that I knew was not the right thing, but I'm trying to help this person out, but they haven't changed behavior. That's not compassion. What I've just done is that I put this person in a position like my kid who didn't have the capacity to run four laps and gave him something that he couldn't handle. And then I would ultimately suffer the consequence for. And now we have this family dynamic of this is why I don't come to Thanksgiving. (laughs) And we see this with families all the time. Compassion is sometimes saying no or creating a boundary and creating a healthy way of engaging with something that as I perceive it and as I understand it, um, is more or less going to be in the best interest of that individual, but it's also going to protect me as well from not experiencing the consequences of someone who may not have the capacity yet to take on as much as I would like to give them. And uh, so I completely get that. And I think what people don't realize about empathy is that empathy takes a world of courage. Hmm. It's a super strength because some people get stuck on the effective empathy side, the emotional empathy side. And I think that Black Lives Matter was a like that summer that we went through where, you know, folks were out and Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, this, that, and the other. Doc, I had 20 friends of mine who were white who reached out to me and said that, hey, you know, I think that such and such is horrible. And I just want to let you know this is how I'm feeling but I could never say anything about this on social media or within my family construct and things of that nature. I can't respond beyond the emotion that I'm feeling because I see that maybe you posted something or another friend of mine posted something. And I, I just want to, I just want to let you know that I'm here for you um, in these other ways, but I can't do for you because it would cause for me to be an outsider within my own social capital construct and networks. So one of the things that we don't talk about with empathy is that sometimes in order to engage empathetically, we have to break down cultural or system paradigms and constructs in a way that we think. But if I'm the only, if I'm the only one in my system speaking on something from a new paradigm, what does that mean? That means that my system can actually engage in social sanctions that push me out the system because I'm engaging in compassion and empathy. I'm actually learning about something. I'm starting to understand the feeling about something. Now I want to do something. But we get stuck there because sometimes doing means that I put myself in a position to be placed out 
of the desk, so to speak. And we don't talk about that piece of it. So even within industry, if people don't engage in empathy when it comes to a particular, and the reason why I did financial empathy specifically is because empathy has always been around. The issue though, is that we're not empathetic in every domain of our life. So the reason why I use financial empathy was because, and you know just as well as I do, we were shaming and guilting people all of the wazoo for years as it relates to money-related matters and issues. And every client that I was seeing, they would say the same thing over and over again. I didn't want to come because I felt guilty about the things I had been doing, and I didn't want to be shamed, or I didn't want you to look at me or browbeat me and all these other different things. And so if I knew that guilt and shame was the issue, then the purpose of the financial empathy TED Talk was to say that maybe this potentially could be a solution to the guilt and shame. And I have a line in the TED Talk where I say something along the lines of, is that empathy is not rooted in complacency, right? Empathy allows for us to unpack the narratives and the stories and the systems of somebody in such a way so that we can actually see them from where they are and we can create solutions where they are. That's just like you as a doctor. If somebody comes in and they see you and you say, how are you feeling? Uh, well, you know, my, my, my chest hurts. And you say, okay, that's enough. I'm going to go ahead and prescribe you with uh, X, Y, and Z. Would you do that in your practice? Just say, oh, all I need to know is that your chest hurts. No, you want to go get an X-ray potentially. You want to understand where it hurts. You want to get your stethoscopes to hear their breathing, to kind of see if there's any like mucus or lung buildup and things of that nature. No one would say that that's outside of the scope of your work. But yet in our space, we could say that, oh, I see this one bit of a person's life and I know who this person is. Where else do they do that as a profession? I have no idea where else they do that as a profession. And if I only know a piece and, and and these are the same people who will post something on social media about like an iceberg where you have the piece of the iceberg and there's all this stuff yeah. that's going on in my life. Like intuitively, you understand this about you, but yet you can't intuitively understand this about the people that you serve. I struggle with that, yeah. right? That's because we want to, because that means that if I accept that there's something more here, that means that there's more work that I have to do to engage in this process of change. And what I've learned is that over time is that oftentimes even professionals want to seek the path, the path of least resistance in a way that they serve the people that they serve. And Doc, I want to be very clear here. I'm in this for real change. And my hope is that when all things are said and done for me throughout this lifetime, that I could say that I was a part of a network of individuals who actually moved the needle on this conversation. And I just happen to believe that understanding systems, digging into the narratives of the lives of individuals, helps me to better understand what tools I need to use to actually help them sustainably achieve their goals. And I think that the empathy perspective, conceptually, big picture, is no different than what we see in any other profession when we're going to diagnose something. I'm just saying that for the financial services space, 
that a lot of it is rooted in the emotional, psychological, money scripts, elements of things, where how else do you get there if you don't engage in an empathetic process in a way that you work with someone so that you can do away with your biases and actually engage in a process where you're engaged in active listening, where you're really trying to understand, where you're really trying to see where the barriers are. And then once we've been able to create that level of intimacy and foster that level of trust, then guess what? The solutions become very apparent at that point in time. And it's not always the thing that I would have suggested, but the goal isn't about my ego and whether or not I knew that this was the right thing. It's no, what is the client bounded by and then how can we create systems so that they can engage in a process of unbounding themselves with my support my wisdom and guidance along the way. And that's just kind of where I stand on that. Well, Michael, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. As I think about our conversation, it really hits me this idea that trauma changes our brains and financial empathy, the telling and receiving of stories allows us to go past sympathy and move towards empathy, actually giving other people agency But then we also have to realize that empathy is not complacent. It's difficult. It might actually mark us as an outsider. It may cause us to look underneath the ice water at the own mountain, at our own mountain underneath. (laughs) Yes. See things we haven't seen. I want to make sure everyone listening right now has a constructive way to get in touch with you if they have questions. What's the easiest way to reach out to you? Yeah. So uh, I post pretty heavily on LinkedIn. Um, so if you're on LinkedIn, you can find Dr. Michael Thomas at University of Georgia. Uh, if you want to reach out to me via email, you can definitely reach out to me that way. Uh, I'm at Modem Solutions, and that's M-O-D-O-M Solutions at gmail.com. Uh, and Modem stands for Money and Wisdom. It comes from my favorite verse in the Bible, which is Ecclesiastes 7, 11, and 12. Money and wisdom can get you almost anything in life. But wisdom is the only thing that can save your life. And uh, so that that so that wisdom element and that empathy, I think that empathy allows us to get, get to the wisdom of a solution. And a lot of that is rooted in my, my um, spiritual beliefs as it relates to that. So, yeah. And I also want to mention you just recently published a book, right? Black yep. Financial yeah. Culture, Building Wealth yeah. from Inside Out, which I saw is available on Amazon as well as elsewhere. It is. And you, if you want to learn more about that, you can go to Black financialculture.com. And the the title of the book, uh, it's written for a very particular audience. I'm from Gary, Indiana. I have a lot of family in Detroit, Flint, Michigan, Minnesota, all around the Great Lakes. And what I've, what I've realized is that the more and more I do the work that I do, um, I actually, there's greater and greater distance that's created between me and the community that I'm from. Because if I'm presenting at, you know, Financial Planning Association, Financial Therapy Association, AMC, all these conferences, um, I'm not seeing and engaging with the people that I come, that where I come from as frequently. And I always said that I wanted to create a path. I wanted the first book that I wrote was going to be one where it's like, this is my gift back to my community. Um, and so Black Financial Culture looks at a lot of my money stories my perceptions of Black culture and Black financial culture, not defining Black financial culture, and how I internalize those things, how I've wrestled with a lot of those things, how I've overcome some things, and how I haven't overcome others. I'm literally an open book, literally and figuratively. Uh, 
in this write-up. And so there's a universal language and message that's for all people. However, if you wanted to actually take the take a look and to be able to see a Black experience from a narrative of, of someone like myself and how I internalize it and how I have very important conversations around perceptions about Black financial culture that some people agree with and, and some people don't, uh, how we look at historical elements uh, that have played into certain um, constructs and wealth position, things of that nature, but how I don't stay fixed on that. And then I talk about, well, what can we also do moving forward? I think it's a very balanced read. Uh, it's less than 100 pages. And I told my mom, I was like, hey, I'm writing this for you to read it because my mom does not like to read, right? And I said, like, if you read this and you felt good about it, then I've achieved my goal. And that was the whole point, was to create access points to have these much larger conversations about things, finances and otherwise. I touch on systems theory. I touch on social capital theory. I touch on solution-focused therapy, person-centered therapy, uh, prospect theory. Like everything that I talk about and I teach about and I write about is in that book, but in non-academic you don't hear me say anything about any of these theories directly, but all of them are woven into this narrative that is palatable for someone who I don't even have a PhD on my book because I did not want that to be a barrier for someone before they even picked it up and began to read it. I wanted to, I want people to embrace this read. It's like, who is this Michael guy? Right. There's no, there's nothing listed saying that I've done this or I'm this or that or whatever it may be. But I want people to read it for what it is and to understand that everything that they're reading in that book is chock full of all of the research, all of the forward-thinking ways that we're thinking about neuroscience and all these different things within a personal finance domain, but done in a way where they're not overwhelmed by the jargon, by the research, right? And you know, just as well as I do, I can say, hey, yeah, go, go read this paper. And then there's a paywall. Right, you need to pay twenty five dollars to read this article. Why? So I didn't want any of that in a book, and it was just something for anybody and everybody to be able to pick up and read. But to see it through my unique lens of me journeying financial culture at large, what I perceive to be Black financial culture, how I internalize it, and then a call to action on the back end, which is not paternalistic, which is you have more power than you think. And I trust you to own that power. Take what you've taken from this book, discard what you want to discard, keep what you want to keep, but be intentional about what step you want to take in terms of creating financial wellness, security, independence for you and your family. That's your choice. That's agency. So I, I create this paradigm where I talk about these things, but I'm not telling anybody what to do. Because I want you to be so intrigued by the conversation that you start to consider it for yourself so that you take steps for yourself. Not because I told you, but because you saw it internally for yourself to do it for yourself. That's empathy. And so I start with empathy with the book and I end with compassion uh, on the back end. And um, it, it really is a passion project and something that I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, so if you hadn't had an opportunity to, to pick it up, I encourage you to add it to your reading list. It's a fun read. It's an emotional read. Um, and it's very vulnerable. 
And it, I, I can honestly say it's, it's not like any other financial, personal finance book that you've probably ever read. And that's the reason I wrote it. Because I could have wrote, I, I could have easily have written Doc. I could write a textbook, literally. Um, but there's tons of those. There's tons of information. I wanted to add heart, nuance, story, systems, vulnerability, me not being perfect as a way to help other people see themselves and say that you don't have to be perfect. Perfection is not required to navigate this journey. We can strive to be excellent and we'll continue to get better as we keep growing within our capacity and building from our baseline, right? Which is a beautiful thing. And that's what I wanted it to be. And I think that I executed on that. Thank you for that reference, Doc. I wasn't wasn't going to push that, but I do appreciate it. Dr. Michael G. Thomas Jr., thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest today. Thank you. I appreciate you. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Today, we talked with Dr. Michael G. Thomas Jr. about financial self-empathy. And I've done a lot of thinking about our conversation and what that means, not just financial self-empathy, but self-empathy in general. As Michael and I talked about, there's this idea that empathy is compassion towards others, or towards oneself for that matter, that gives us agency. And so then self-empathy would be compassion towards ourselves that gives us agency or the ability to take action and do those things we want to do. This is something I've really struggled with throughout my life. I have not been very self-empathic. And part of the reason is really what we're talking about when we're talking about this compassion and agency is this concept of being enough. I think self-empathy is a feeling of enoughness. And I know in my life, I've struggled to feel like I was enough. When my dad died when I was seven years old, I felt like I wasn't good enough, like I did something wrong. When I had a learning disability and couldn't learn to read like my peers, I thought I wasn't smart enough. And interestingly, as I became more able, I learned how to read, I got good grades, even went to medical school. Instead of each achievement making me feel better, it never really quenched that need to feel like enough. Instead of making me feel like I had reached my goal, it just made me push towards the next goal. I never felt like I was enough. I didn't have a lot of self-empathy. I didn't have a lot of compassion to myself which prohibited me from feeling agency or control over my future or the ability to use my actions to produce a better outcome. The problem with trying to feel like enough is it's something that is generated internally and not externally. So if you're like me, you've gone out there and tried to achieve all these things, to have all these accolades, to get all these job promotions, or make all this money to help you feel like you're enough. But those things on the outside will never, ever 
make you feel like you're enough. They certainly didn't for me, especially those of us who are really achievement-oriented. It doesn't quench our thirst. So what do we do then? How do we truly practice self-empathy? I think the best way is when you realize that you already are enough. In fact, you've been enough from the day you were born. What you are resides inside of you, and no achievement, no accolade, no action in the future is going to change that. Self-empathy is embracing who you are today and accepting that is enough. Why is this empathic? What it really does is it gives you permission to live the rest of your life without trying to fill this void, this emptiness. It just lets you focus on the future. You are already enough. You've always been enough. And you will continue to be enough. And nothing that happens today or tomorrow is going to change that. That, to me, is self-empathy. When it comes to finances, that means realizing that you already have enough. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go out and try to reach financial independence or reach some net worth number. But it's the realization that getting there will not fix all your problems or will not make you feel like more than enough because you already are. It will just enhance your ability to start doing those things you want to do, utilizing your time the way you want to. I think this might be one of the hardest lessons to learn, how to be empathic towards oneself. I know it's taken me years, lots of practice, and a lot of grace to get to this point where I can look at myself in the mirror and say that I feel like I'm enough. I'm hoping this conversation with Michael G. Thomas Jr. has also given you some of that strength to do the same thing, to learn how to be self-empathic, to look in the mirror and say, I am enough. Because the truth of the matter is, you are already. Two things I know you got to go, but we just didn't have time. But the, I'm sorry, I was no, 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 no. I, you, you, you. It was beautiful, wonderful. I, I love everything we got. But one of the questions that I would have liked to go in further to is, you know, Modem Solutions, you specifically say that really your target for coaching is black men. And I, you know, I think it's such an interesting conversation, the financial empathy crisis and how it relates to black men specifically yeah, in American society yeah. today. And that's, I mean, that's such a deep conversation. It right? is but a deep one. But it, Jordan, it'd be an interesting it, story or interesting it conversation. It, it goes, it goes back to this notion of hustle culture, right? And what's what's fascinating to me, now I've, Jordan, I've tried to work with, with black men specifically. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very, or men in general, quite honestly. It, it's, it's still a very sensitive thing because there are so many different dynamics that are at play right now in terms of what is or isn't masculinity. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the role mm -hmm. of a man in a household? If you are the breadwinner, if you're not the breadwinner. And then we have to think about this. There literally is this perpetual shadow 
of guilt and shame that's being placed on masculinity and what that is. And, And because of that, it becomes a very sensitive thing to talk about because it can make me feel as if I'm not man enough. Yeah. And and that's and 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 there's some danger I think in that too because we know when when men are upset, when men are emotional, men tend to be more aggressive towards themselves, which is why we see higher incidents of suicide from men or to to other people. And there there are very few release valves I think for for men right now where they can just where they can have the opportunity to sit with self without the the burden or weight of expectation being placed on them so that they can begin to kind of figure this out for me and to own what I want for me to be and for me to define my own joy and my own amount my my own space and what I found with men working with them with money is that their frustration, generally speaking, is that they think that I'm going to come in and tell them what to do. And it's a territorial thing. And I am always very clear. When I, and I work with more women than I do with men. Actually, probably of the 10 people that I work with, eight of them are women, maybe two men, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it is what it is. But I always tell them that, hey, dude, um, I'm not here to take your seat within your kingdom. I'm here so that you can look over your kingdom and to be able to feel proud of what you've been able to establish and what you've been able to create. And guess what? I don't want any credit. I don't, I'm not going to come back to you and say, hey, remember when I told you to do that? Saw how that worked? No. I'm here to be to serve as somewhat of a guide for you. And to fill in the gaps and to help for you to see some things a little bit more clearly that you may not have the capacity to see all the way through so that you can make the best decision for you and your kingdom that you feel as if is over your domain. I just want to make sure that you're able to do that to the full. This isn't about me. This is all about you. And I think that when I approach it that way with the men that I work with, the tension goes away because I'm not trying to pull their masculinity card. I'm not trying to say that you're not enough. I'm not trying to say that you're not capable. I'm trying to say that, hey, there's some good things that you've done. There's some other things where we can adjust a little bit uh, if you trust me and in, in the process, but it's all you that that gets to do the work and take all the glory. I don't need any of it. And, and I think that for a lot of men, that's the issue that I run into is that if they come see me, I'm confirming that they're not man enough. Yeah. No, that's not yeah. it. Oh. That, it's such, I mean, so I'm 49 years old and I did therapy for the first time earlier this year. And I've had my yeah. own struggles with masculinity because my dad died when I was seven and I grew up in a very mother centered mm-hmm. household. Understood. And my therapist said, she's like, well, you know, talk to me about what being a man means to you. And yes. I realized that a lot of the verbiage I used was being a man was always being there. And it finally hit me that that's exactly what my father wasn't, right? And so this yep. whole masculinity thing just goes down to the deep, I mean, of who we are and how we feel about ourselves. And Yes. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. 
with new episodes every day. This podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.